One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story on the BBC. I'm Celia Hatton. This week, we're looking at a hot topic in one of the coldest places in the world. A couple years ago, we found this male polar bear with a fresh hunt, a seal that he was skinning, literally, at the time. And we were able to get very close to this piece of sea ice in a little zodiac that I was driving. And uh, people just became silent. You could hear only the wind and the claws of the polar bear, and you could smell the blood in the air. To this day, when I think about it, it still gives me goosebumps. Alice Wong grew up in Beijing, but when her parents took her on an unusual holiday, a guided voyage to the North Pole, it changed her life. She was entranced by the Arctic, so much so that she got a job with the same tour company that took her on her first trip there. She's now the head Mandarin guide for Cork Expeditions. The kind of trips Chinese people like to go on are often centered around wildlife. So specifically for the Arctic, that would be Svalbard for polar bears and Arctic wildlife and the North Pole, which is a very significant destination. Some of them I've met, they are self-made millionaires, if not billionaires. Some of them are just simple people who have saved up for many, many years and eventually bought themselves this once-in-a-lifetime experience. But I think there is something that links them all. They're all going to the Arctic to seek something that they don't think they could find anywhere else. There's been a much less welcoming atmosphere for other Chinese visitors to the same region. China's acquired several polar icebreakers, those big ships that allow it to cut through thick ice. And it's becoming the second country after Russia to order a nuclear-powered icebreaker. That's eyebrow-raising for some countries who question what China's doing with such an expensive piece of hardware when it lies nearly 3,000 kilometers from the Arctic Circle. And that's at the heart of this week's episode of The Real Story. Is Beijing going for a resource grab at a high price for the environment in the Arctic? Or is it creating new opportunities for neglected Arctic communities? We brought together a panel of experts who've done extensive work on the economic, environmental and political questions concerning the Arctic and how the entry of China changes things. It was a discussion that taught me a lot about the Arctic and highlighted some of the common misperceptions about the region. I think you will enjoy the discussion too. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. Annika Nilsson is an Arctic researcher with the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden. She's on the line from Stockholm. Mark Lantain is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the Arctic University of Norway. He's on the line from Tromsø, which is within the Arctic Circle. Wenren Jiang is an adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia in Canada. He's in Ottawa with us today. And Rebecca Pincus is an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She's joining us from Rhode Island. Now, I'm eager to hear how all of you view China's activities in the Arctic, but I want to put China aside just for a moment so we can set the scene. Let's talk about the Arctic itself. How is the region changing, particularly in regards to its environment, and why is it getting attention now? Annika Nilsson, can we go to you on this first? 
Yes, I mean, the reason why it's getting attention, of course, is that it's the epicenter of climate change, in a sense. The warming in the Arctic is twice the global rate, and the thinning sea ice is what's gotten so much attention. And it's going to be ice-free summers in just two decades from now. And if you go back 20 years, saying that would have been almost unthinkable. And the warming, of course, has implications for a range of issues. Ice and snow, obviously, it melts when it gets warmer. Also, the snow, the snow cover is declining. And the forest and the ground is changing. You're getting forest further north or higher up in the mountains. But you're also getting different ground conditions when when the permafrost is melting and you have wildfires to an extent that you haven't had before. So you have those kinds of changes. You have changes that link to the demand for minerals, new mines opening up and prospecting for new mines. You have changes that are related to the political situation, both the geopolitical situation, but also indigenous peoples' rights, those kinds of changes. So it's a mixture of environmental changes, political changes, social changes that's creating a, a new dynamic. Rebecca Pincus, let's turn to you. You used to work with the U.S. Coast Guard. You were one of their leading researchers on Arctic issues. How do you think this new Arctic how were commercial and strategic interests in flux there? Um, as we start, I just want to briefly note that the opinions that I'm going to be sharing today are my own academic opinions, and they're not the official position of the Naval War College, the United States Navy, or the United States Department of Defense. Um, Annika did a great job of summarizing the enormous amount of environmental change that is sweeping across the Arctic and drawing with it political and social changes. And from a commercial perspective, there are two ways of thinking about economic interests in the Arctic. In the first place, there's an enormous amount of natural resources located in the region. And we've known about them for a long time. There's oil and gas, there's minerals, there's timber and other kinds of resources but we haven't been able to access them very easily because the sea ice has blocked access to the region. And it's also been technologically very difficult. And so retreating sea ice and improving technology has increased human ability to access the region, the resources in the Arctic region. In addition to the stuff that's located up there, there are new shipping routes opening up that run through the Arctic Ocean. And those shipping routes connect the North Pacific and Asian ports with the North Atlantic and ports in North America and Northern Europe. And shipping through the Arctic region, depending on, on the journey that you're taking specifically, can cut about a third off of the transit time. So that have the potential to reshape global maritime commerce. You know, over 90% of the world's economic traffic runs by sea. And the prospect of opening up shipping routes between Asia, between Chinese ports and markets in Europe and North America is an enormous shift that could reshuffle all kinds of 
established patterns of ship traffic. Okay. Well, I think it's time now to introduce China's part in all of this. And I think we should hear from the man who's representing China's developing strategy there. Gao Feng is China's special representative for Arctic affairs. This is part of his speech at the last meeting of the Arctic Circle six months ago. Ladies and gentlemen, Arctic is situated as a special geographical location and has a fragile ecosystem. It is an area of land and sea, national jurisdiction, and a combination of sea areas within and without national jurisdiction. It plays an irreplicable role in scientific research, environmental protection, resource utilization, and tackling climate change. China will make efforts to promote a blue economy passage leading up to Europe via the Arctic Ocean, participates in uh, Arctic affairs, supports efforts by countries bordering the Arctic in improving maritime transportation, and encourages Chinese enterprises to take part in the commercial use of the Arctic route. So China will uh, uphold the Silk Road uh, spirit of peace and cooperation, openness and uh, inclusiveness, with a view to uh, jointly building a bright future for the Arctic. Thank you very much. In that speech, Gao Feng was pushing the idea that certain Arctic waters are for international use. But is he right? Philippe Sands is a leading international lawyer. Five countries border the Arctic Circle and its waters. Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia and the United States. And each of them have claims to waters up to 200 miles, and they will each be claiming what's called an extended continental shelf, rights on the seabed up to about 350 miles or possibly even beyond. And what that means is you've got a regime in which the five coastal states have special rights under the governing law, which is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. But that doesn't mean that other states, including China, are not able to make some use of those waters. Waters that are beyond 200 miles, in other words, beyond what's called the exclusive economic zone, are high seas. And any state has a right of free navigation in those high seas and also, to a certain extent, free navigation in an exclusive economic zone. So you've got here a balancing of interests between the special rights of five coastal states and the general rights of the rest of the world, including China. You mentioned the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea, which China has itself noted when publishing its Arctic strategy last year. Does it always tend to follow this treaty? Well, the 1982 convention, which came into force in 1994, sets out really the general international rules on the law of the sea. And most of it is customary international law and so binds everyone. Of the five coastal states, only one is not a party, the United States. And China is a party like the four other coastal states. So they're bound by the rules set forth in that convention. But of course, China's relationship is somewhat quixotic in the sense that it likes it sometimes and it doesn't like it other times. I was involved for several years as counsel for Philippines in the case that the Philippines brought against China in relation to the South China Seas. And China's position lost, if you like, at the international tribunal that ruled in favour of Philippines, ruling 
that China did not have sovereignty over the South China Seas or large parts of it, and that therefore Philippines was entitled to freedom of navigation and various other things in large parts of the South China Seas. And of course, here you've got a certain contradiction between what is said about the rights of China in the Arctic area and the rights that other states want to exercise in the South China Seas, but which China does not wish to respect. So China can't have its cake and eat it. That was Philippe Sands raising a few concerns about China's approach to the Arctic. Well, let's turn back to our guests now. Mark Lantain, let's turn to you. What's the most important thing China's doing to further its ambitions across the Arctic? Thank you. Right now, China has a multifaceted approach to its Arctic policy. If you were to speak to a Chinese official about what China's priorities are, you would very likely get a response saying that we're interested in developing scientific partnerships and finding out more about how these climate changes in the Arctic are affecting us. That said, though, China does have a very considerable economic agenda that it is starting to develop. It's very interested in investing in not only shipping, but also potential mining and oil and gas. And as the Arctic opens up, China wants to make sure that its interests are being well represented there. Wen Renjiang, Mark mentioned the economic agenda. Is that really what this boils down to? Is China just trying to push and look for more resources, more places to ship goods? Well, of course, economic agenda is very important, uh, as uh, the statement from the Chinese official uh, that you quoted. As Mark mentioned, though, it is multifaceted. I mean, China, ironically, and interestingly, the white paper published early last year, the opening basically cited uh, the enormous environment and uh, climate changes, which has a major impact on the rest of the world and on China as well, which propel China to actually thinking the now and proclaiming the Arctic is no longer the regional issue, it's a global issue. Therefore, China as a near-Arctic state uh, needs to get involved. So it actually started with the environmental issues. They've been doing research, scientific research for uh, many years. And now, I think, move into other strategic dimensions, how important it is uh, for China to access the Arctic and the You know, China is the largest trading nation in the world and with several trillion dollars of of goods moving around the world and 90% of them going through the sea. They will look at what, as Rebecca mentioned, the northwest, northeast uh, routes to Europe and to uh, North America is very significant to potentially shortening the travel routes for China's goods going around the world. So this is definitely coming back to the very commercial side of the things, plus the mineral and energy resource exploration is not just theoretically talking about the potentials. We're talking about some 13% of global oil and probably 30% of potential global gas reserved in the region. And China started uh, operation with Russia already on the Yamal project. And latestly in the past few days, the um, number two LNG project is the second of the Yamal follow-up. So yes, there is a comprehensive Chinese presence, but I'm not sure it's a particularly assertive one, but we can discuss further on that. We, we should mention when you say LNG, that's liquid yes. natural gas. Uh, that's correct. Winran, you can had... I, uh, yeah, go on. Well, I think one thing that's interesting to see with the hair that applies not only to China, but in general, because of 
everything being so uncertain and suddenly the geography itself is changing, the physical geography has made it really important for all countries, in a sense, to reassert their position. So before the first sea ice minimum, no one really talked about UNCLOS in the Arctic. And then it became a big issue to talk about and the Arctic Council, in a sense, demanding of new observers to say that they adhere to UNCLOS. But the key point must be that although all countries could reimagine their Arctic strategies, China seems to be doing much more than other countries that don't border the Arctic Circle. Calling itself a near-Arctic state, labeling itself that way, does that carry some weight? I think it carries weight just because it's a big country with a lot of economic muscle. But Scotland also actually talks about it's the closest Arctic neighbour. So it's it's a rhetoric that, that comes in. And previously, no one talked about themselves as Arctic states. That's actually a new type of rhetoric that has come into the discussion in the past 10 years or plus. I think China is unique, not in relation to the Arctic, but in relation to its size globally. And it could also, its actions in the Arctic could also be analyzed in relation to its actions in other parts of the world. I just want to jump in to mention that, of course, China is a very large economy and a fast growing economy. The stakes are very high. But in terms of the strategy, let's put China aside. In fact, Russia is the one that has a most assertive and clear strategy among probably all the Arctic countries. And China, actually, interestingly, one major scholar asked a question during a conference saying, uh, what is the strategy of Canada or the other countries? Now, China works closely with Russia on resource extraction because Russia spells it out very clearly and China can actually have something to respond and act together. So this kind of interesting dynamics, we're observing that China is, in fact, very actively engaging and interacting. But you can see the Chinese are accessing not just Russia, but everybody else as well. Yeah, I mean, Ren Ren, you raise a good point. China has a developing Arctic strategy, a relatively assertive Arctic strategy. Rebecca Pincus, do you think this highlights the fact that other countries, including the United States, aren't as assertive, aren't as clear on what they want in the Arctic? That's a good question. Every Arctic state is different and has a different priority for developing in the Arctic region. So as some of the guests have already noted, Arctic development is a top priority for the Russian government. It's just a core national interest. It's a really important part of Russian grand strategy for the 21st century and beyond. Other Arctic states, in particular Canada, have been less eager to develop their Arctic economies. The Canadian perspective has focused more strongly on environmental protection and the Canadian government has been developing new governance structures that give a greater power to local communities in the Arctic region. Most of the small Nordic countries emphasize multilateral structures that will shape the future of the Arctic because small countries get greater influence working through multilateral fora. From a U.S. perspective, Arctic issues are frankly not of great political relevance. The average American does not think of him or herself as belonging to an Arctic nation. And so with that low political salience, Arctic issues have really been off the political radar. So there's a tremendous diversity in the region itself. And then looking outside of the Arctic, obviously, 
there are a number of states that stand to be affected by Arctic development. From a Chinese perspective, their interest is particularly important and understandable, not only from the economic perspective, because of all the resources and the shipping routes in the Arctic, but also because there's a strategic angle to China's interest as well. The vast majority of Chinese imports, including strategic imports like oil and gas, come through maritime choke points like the Strait of Malacca. And the alternative of harvesting resources and, and getting imports through Arctic routes from Russia offers strategic diversity to China. And it's therefore an added element that enhances the economic payoff from developing Arctic resources and shipping routes. It offers strategic benefits as well. And so it's important to think about not only the economic angle, but the strategic angle as various countries reflect interest in developing Arctic resources. If I could jump in. Talking about um, China's particular kind of status within the Arctic economically, in the middle of 2017, it was confirmed by the Chinese government that the Arctic Ocean was going to be added to the Belt and Road Initiative which is a series of trade routes which were announced by the Xi Jinping government uh, after 2013 to expand Chinese trade in many key regions, including Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Europe. But what makes the Arctic's inclusion of the Belt and Road very interesting is in other parts of the initiative, we're starting to see China develop interest in port investment. For example, in Pakistan, Djibouti, uh, various other places along the Indian Ocean. So now there's the question of, will China begin to develop potential trade hubs in the Arctic? We don't know exactly the course of the so-called ice silk road that China's interested in putting together. But there's a lot of interest, for example, here in northern Norway about the possibility of new Arctic ports, which would increase shipping from East Asia. Absolutely. That's a great point, Mark. And when you look at the strategic aspects, I think you also, what, what resources are there that will be strategic, not now, but 20, 30 years down the line, and you're talking about the rare earth minerals that are partly found in the Arctic and where the other place they're mainly found are in China. So that is one thing that I also think there's a positioning around. And that's where you see, for example, the discussion in mining, also in Sweden, you know, the need for new mines to get at these rare earth minerals that mm -hmm. are important for alternative energy sources as the expectations of new markets coming up. Okay, so we've set the terms of the discussion. We're talking about China's role in the Arctic. We've talked a little bit about its increasingly assertive strategy, especially in comparison to some, some other countries. But we're going to take a short break. We're going to, in the second half of the program, ask the question, you know, does this Arctic strategy from Beijing. Does it pose a threat or does it present opportunities? And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at China's ambitions in the Arctic. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the program every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk.
But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, exploring China's Arctic ambitions and my guests, Annika Nilsson, Arctic researcher with KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden. She's on the line from Stockholm. Mark Lantain is an associate professor of political science at the Arctic University of Norway. He's on the line from Tromsø, which is within the Arctic Circle. Wenren Jiang is an adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. He's in Ottawa with us today. And Rebecca Pincus is an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She's joining us from Rhode Island. In the first half of the program, we heard how the environment is changing in the Arctic and how China has been refocusing its attention there. In the second half, let's ask, should China's new focus on the Arctic be seen as an opportunity, a threat, or perhaps something in between? The question of Chinese investments in Greenland became such a hotly debated issue last year that the controversy ultimately led to the collapse of the coalition government there. It all began when the government announced plans to build three airports with longer runways deemed essential for economic growth. Greenland is a self-governing region within the Kingdom of Denmark, and it relies heavily on financial support from Copenhagen. But with no money for the necessary airports, the government of Greenland turned to China. Copenhagen and Washington both voiced security concerns. Alternative financing was ultimately offered by Denmark, pushing China out. Pelle Broberg is a member of the Greenland Parliament for the pro-independence Parti Nilirak and former Minister of Finance in Greenland. What's his take on doing business with China? Everybody needs sound skeptical mind when it comes to foreign direct investments, no matter where they come from, especially if there are clauses attached to said investments. But when you look at the export from Greenland, our primary market is China. So currently we do have a lot of Chinese workers in our factories, which in itself is not a problem for anybody up here, as long as they don't take the working place of ordinary Greenlanders, which currently they don't do. So is this an economic decision for you then? Is every player seen in the same way? I would say yes and no. We do not regard investments from Denmark the same way as the rest of the world. Denmark has a tradition of uh, trying to control Greenland. We prefer investments that take care of the indigenous population. So as long as investments are based on the assumption of mutual development, we are very much interested in it, no matter where it comes from. Are there concerns, though, that by accepting greater investment from China, Greenland might fall into the same debt traps that that countries around the world are encountering right now? For example, Sri Lanka has had to hand over a major port to Beijing because it simply couldn't keep up with the payments that it owed to Beijing. Thank you very much for bringing Sri Lanka up, actually. I've used it as an example while I was Minister of Finance. Now, it's quite easy to assume that because we are a former colonial part of Denmark, we would go to the first moneylender and just say we need to borrow a lot of money. But the collateral that we have to put up would also mean that we would give up any kind of independence in the future if we make the same mistake as in Sri Lanka, which is why we pulled out of the coalition, because it's not a sound investment tying up a part of Greenland to a foreign country no matter if that country is Denmark. But really, who is on the list of the countries that are really trying to invest in your country? And where does China fall on that list? 
China is quite high on my personal list. They think long term, which means that what we have seen so far is they don't mind investing trillions of dollars in uh, developing countries without expecting a return on investment for the first 25 years. Now, when we look at people that are coming to Greenland looking for business opportunities, we quite often get the same answer, either being from Denmark or the States, how can we make a quick buck? Now, China doesn't do that. They look at it from a different perspective. They view the long-term relationship more important, which means also they don't put up the same requirements of collateral or quid pro quo uh, for investments in Greenland. They primarily do it to get a foothold in the Arctic. We are not that naive to think they don't want to have any political influence in the Arctic, but they do it in a different way than uh, most uh, Western countries do. So in that sense, China falls quite high on my personal list of investor opportunities. That was Greenland politician Pele Broberg. Annika Nilsson, have you seen this attitude in many other parts of the region? I think it's a mixed bag. Also in Greenland, who you ask what position people have, whether they welcome or don't welcome. One of the worries is that when you get big external actors coming in, what role will the voice of people who live in the region actually play? The four million people who live in the Arctic and have to continue living there, what opportunity do they really have to have a say in what's going on? Or will they be run over by big actors? And that, for example, relates to land use, where there is in some parts of the Arctic, quite a competition for land use. The same piece of land can be used for mining, for reindeer herding, for forestry, for tourism, and and they're not necessarily compatible. So who should have a voice in then how land should be used? Another concern, which in a sense contradicts the long-term planning and thinking that was attractive to the Greenland politicians, is that the Arctic resource economies are often very boom and bust economies. When there is high demand, things go well. When there is low demand, things don't go well at all because there are no alternative jobs, for example. And is this kind of investment going to increase the dependency on single resources, on single jobs? So that is a a real concern when big players come in. And what do you think? What is China's track record in the region so far? Or can we really only look to other projects around the world that China's been involved in? It's too early to judge China's track record in the Arctic. I don't expect them to act differently in the Arctic than they do in other parts of the world. But you can look at other countries' track record in the Arctic and what the consequences of that has been for local communities. And one consequence is that Many local communities are dependent on a very narrow economic base, which makes them very vulnerable to, for example, drops in in global oil prices or global demand for minerals. So that is a concern. In terms of development, if you want a sustainable development at the local level. Rebecca Pincus, I want to ask you about China's order of a nuclear icebreaker. This has been cited many times as evidence, really, that its interest in the Arctic can pose a threat. How do you think the United States views this? That's interesting because nuclear-powered icebreakers will be able to break more ice, stay out longer. But also a lot of experts point to this vessel as 
facilitating the development of nuclear-powered submarines for China because the nuclear power plant for an icebreaker may be fairly comparable to that for a submarine. And so that would be an important new capability for China and would really mark a step forward in their global status as a major military power. So it's interesting that that's kind of hooked on to their interest in the Arctic. And obviously, when we think about more and more capable presence in the Arctic Ocean, more Chinese ships being able to operate there independently, that will have an interesting effect on Chinese relationships with Arctic coastal states. Wenren, is that enough, do you think, to raise concerns? Is that a fair thing? The Chinese presence of the Arctic is tied to China's overall rise as a great power and China's activities around the world. I think in that regard, there are three misperceptions, I would say, about China's strategic interest and assertiveness, potentially, at the Arctic. I think the first misperception is somehow China is just forcing itself into all these other smaller economies and countries because they are so big and they're so powerful, they got the money. But in reality, if you look at what the former finance minister at Greenland is saying, is that it's their choice to seek out Chinese investment. In the case of Greece, we know the country was a few years back was going to go bankrupt. And they went to China saying, do something with us. And China went there to do their port facilities. So therefore, I would characterize China's assertiveness in the Arctic and in the rest of the world is more of a proactive response to opportunities presented by other countries. As they say, when they come to China, China will respond rather than being a negative, aggressive behavior, predatory in nature. That's not the case. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Annika? Regardless of whether it's an outright aggressive act, which probably is usually not the case, or as you say, more opportunistic, the consequences what you have to look at is you have a small community maybe with not that incredible capacity to negotiate always against a quite powerful actor. So you have a power imbalance in the negotiations. But it's also interesting in the sense that indigenous peoples in the Arctic are also increasing their capacity, asserting their rights, so the situation, in a sense, different from if you look at old colonial times where many of them were, frankly, just run over. So it's a changing field, and I think one should be careful about simplifying it too much. Wenran, you also don't yeah. want us to simplify China's role as always being predatory. I want to turn on quickly on the second and third misperception. The second one is people are basically saying all the Belt and Road Initiative or China's landings in the Arctic in other countries are potentially a death trap. You know, the uh, Sri Lanka port issue is being very quoted, very anecdotal. There are comprehensive studies showing there's no intention to show China setting up any of the death traps. Many of the countries need capital, and the World Bank and others cannot provide it. And most developing countries actually are criticizing that kind of criticism towards China, saying they need the money and they don't want to be lectured by the Western countries who messed up things for many decades. So therefore, I want to be careful about 
characterizing China's overall lending activities around the world as a debt trap strategy. And the third one related to the double standards that the lawyer worked for the Philippines mentioned earlier on the freedom of navigation. In fact, China is very consistent in the two areas. Another point that should be made is that China's experience in the Arctic is still very limited compared to other non-Arctic states, for example, in Western Europe. China's Arctic policy really only started to hit its stride in, I would say, the 1980s, when it started to develop a research station in Svalbard, for example, and began to seriously engage the Arctic states on scientific interests. So in many ways, China is still experiencing a bit of a learning curve, not only in terms of governments and the environment, but also, as was noted, indigenous populations. So you have Chinese representatives at, for example, Arctic Council meetings. They arrive with notebooks. They say that we're here to learn. Experience can't be bought. About China's interpretation of the law of the sea, it was made very clear, for example, in the Arctic White Paper that Beijing released in January of last year, that it very much wanted to approach the subject of the Arctic in terms of governance with various legal institutions in place, not only UNCLOS, but also new uh, institutions such as the Polar Code, which was put into place very recently, which looks at civilian ship traffic, and that China wanted to engage the Arctic region in dealing with issues such as uh, health and safety, search and rescue, and various other issues which are starting to pop up as the Arctic becomes more traversed by civilian and by shipping vessels. I want to go back to something that Chinese officials have said repeatedly, that if they begin to use Arctic waters consistently, shipping goods, it will bring down shipping costs worldwide, and that is a benefit for all. Rebecca Pincus, how do you see this? Do you think this is a fair argument? Shipping in the Arctic is not an easy proposition, and there are some really important limitations on its economic payoff. First of all, it's a very remote region without a lot of supporting infrastructure through large parts of the Arctic, in particular on the Russian and North American side. There's significant gaps in infrastructure in communications and search and rescue. So it's a very difficult region to operate in, and that raises costs. It raises risks, and it raises insurance costs. We're not yet sure how insurance companies are going to treat Arctic shipping because it's still in its infancy. So there are some important additional costs that may balance out some of the savings. That savings aspect, you know, cutting a third off a voyage between China and Rotterdam, for example, that depends on how fast the vessel is traveling. And when you're shipping in the Arctic region, there may be bad weather, there may be ice conditions. And so speed is an important question mark. Also, a big component of any savings is fuel cost. But when fuel prices are low, the payoff is less important. And so the future of Arctic shipping is uncertain because of those big question marks. So what we're seeing right now is more and more ships operating in the Arctic region, but most of them are going to and from Arctic destinations. Most commercial containerized shipping operates in a just-in-time model. So companies put something in a container in an Asian port and they need it to arrive in an American or a European port just in time to plug into a factory or be put on a truck to go to a store. When you're shipping through the Arctic region, you don't get just in time. It's too unpredictable. To add to that, which are really important what Rebecca brings up, but in a sense, 
drawing those shipping routes on the map, investing in the icebreakers, talking about these opportunities, is in a sense also a political act of trying to position what the Arctic is going to be in the future as much as it is realistic commercial plans. And I think you have to think of these kinds of discussions in that sense as geopolitical positioning in the larger scale. Well, it certainly seems that China is playing the long game. I mean, this is something that's been said over and over again. And I guess the question is, if China has commercial interests in the region or future developing commercial interests in the region, is it going to want to develop its political influence there too? And is that going to lead to potential flashpoints, potential points of tension in that area between China and other regional players in the next few years? Yeah, when I'm here, if I may jump in, that's a very interesting question because Rebecca highlighted that is exactly what is true. It's not melting up tourists going there to see Northern Light. It's extremely dangerous and difficult to navigate. But that actually at the same time bringing in some of the potential opportunities. That's where Chinese are seeing, can they come in to build infrastructures along the routes? For example, along the Northwest package, Canada doesn't even have a port. Would Chinese be able coming to do it? So you're saying, is there a political objective or is commercial or it's combined? The Canadians, for example, if they want the Chinese to come in, they need to answer those questions. And the Chinese are putting up what they call the Asheco model, which is the port in China. They started building the port and then they around the port, they do some manufacturing, gathering uh, of uh, tax-free zones. Then they develop into a town and then further they develop infrastructure into inland. Can they move that model into the Arctic with the acceptance of the local communities and different countries saying this will not be politically attaching any conditions, you're doing this for the common interest, not only China's future routes of traveling, trading, but also developing Aboriginal local communities. Very interesting questions on the table on how you mix politics and economics here. How will China mix politics and economics in the future? China's presence in the Arctic is peaceful so far, but could that come to an end? Do you foresee that in the future, Mark Lantang? Yes, it's an excellent question. Like, for example, let's fast forward, let's say, 10, 15 years, and we see many China-invested projects begin to come to fruition in Russia and Greenland, potentially ports along uh, the Arctic Ocean. Will China still be happy being an observer in the Arctic Council under those kinds of circumstances? Or will it begin to suggest that, well, because we have such a significant economic presence, we need a bigger say in governance? Indeed, a big part of of China's Arctic strategy is the development of its relationship with Russia. But how will that relationship play out as China builds on its Arctic ties and and builds its commercial interests there? Uh, Rebecca Pincus, what do you think? It's a fascinating question. The Russian sort of grand vision for its future is to develop the Northern Sea Route into a major shipping route that runs across the Russian coastline, use the economic activity, the revenue generated from developing the NSR to tap into all of the resources along the Russian coast and in Siberia to regain great power status. But Russia can't do this by itself. It doesn't have enough capital. It's After 2014 and the imposition of sanctions, a lot of sources of capital were cut off. And you can see a really sharp turn after 2014 
during which Russia pivoted really sharply towards China and sought Chinese capital to replace the void created by the sanction regimes. Do China and Russia see each other as equal partners? No. And that's where some of the friction lies. So China knows that Russia is coming from a place of weakness here, that they need capital. And Russia is also not a really easy business partner. And so when a Chinese company or investment vehicle is going to invest in a major project in Russia, they want a majority stake because they want to be able to control or manage that development process and know that they've got enough control over it. From a Russian perspective, the Arctic is really important to them, and they want to retain control. They don't want anybody else getting a majority stake in Arctic developments. But how does and, the U.S. view that developing relationship between China and Russia? I would argue that we're not paying enough attention, although I think that's starting to change. It's important to think about the role that Western pressure plays in pushing Russia towards China and the influence of that sanctions regime and some of the other isolating strategies that the West is using. We're not operating in a vacuum vis-a-vis -vis Russia because Russia has China as this alternative partner. Depending on how desperate Russia becomes, and again, that's going to be toggled to the global price of oil, they will be more or less willing to accede to Chinese demands. Okay, well, we have time for one last question for each one of our guests. So can you briefly tell us one thing you think we might have missed in our discussion so far? What's one thing that you think we need to understand when it comes to China's role in the Arctic? Annika Nilsson, let's start with you. If you're going to look long term, I think you should also look at what will the role of oil and gas and coal be in the long term in relation to other energy sources? And how will that affect power relations, resource flows, shipping routes, all of these things? It's a big question mark and at what time scale, but I think that's something we cannot ignore if we're going to look at what's going to happen in the Arctic long term. Mark Tang, what do you think? What have, what have we missed so far? Well, I would say that because China is still a relative newcomer to the region, and unlike some other non-Arctic states that are operating in the region, China has been especially under a microscope. So it's still having to walk a very fine line between, on one hand, being seen too passive in the region, but on the other hand, being seen as a gate crasher. So I think that kind of middle-of-the-road stance will be affecting a lot of China's thinking in the region, at least for the short term. Rebecca Pincus, let, let's turn to you. What do you think that we need to understand when it comes to China's role in the Arctic? I think it's important to remember that there's two polar regions and capabilities, know-how, platforms that can be used in the Arctic region can be used in the Antarctic region in the southern pole. And a lot of Chinese thinking about the polar regions ties those two regions together. So I think that's another important component of this. Think about polar strategies as linked together. Wenren Jiang? I think it's important to highlight what China is looking at in engagement in different Arctic countries is all the countries, whether they have a clear Arctic strategy to articulate when China then can respond 
what they call officially in a positive manner. The Russian example is paramount, as Rebecca and others mentioned, because Russia has a clearly articulated Arctic policy, and the Chinese are not doing icebreakers and others. And President Putin wants to quadruple the amount of LNG shipment from the current 18 million tons to 80 in a matter of five or six years. And the Chinese are right there. Not only they have icebreakers, they have built. Enhanced LNG shapers in Guangzhou. That is another more technologically developed, other than icebreaker dimension. Does that mean that other states have not articulated that Arctic strategy?、Uh, Arctic in the case、strategy? of in the case of the United States, in the case of Canada, absolutely no articulated, integrated, visionary, long-term, medium-term approach to the Arctic. There's a lot of discussions. Every time they will talk about it, they will do a feasibility study. Nothing happens, and that is actually very. Much the situation among probably other smaller states as well, but Canada is huge in comparison with Russia, right? A massive northwest passage. The country has no strategy, no funding, no port. There's one road leading to it. Therefore, we can't articulate a engagement strategy. Without articulating what we want, whether we want to engage in China in that which way, if domestically we don't have consensus, and that is a key question for all the Arctic states to look at China's engagement. China is coming, so to speak. How do we respond? Russia has responded with much better, clear vision. I think other countries will look at their internal Arctic articulation and strategy only after that. We can probably engage or fence off、uh, China in terms of assertiveness if people feel that is the Chinese way, and so therefore it's not just about China and how to deal with China; it's on how we are approaching the Arctic ourselves in different countries around the neighborhood there. That's it for this week on the Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Annika Nilsson, Arctic researcher at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden; Mark Lantang, associate professor of political science at the Arctic University of Norway; Wenran Jiang, he's an adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia in Canada; and Rebecca Pincus, assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. From me, Celia Hatton, and the team. That's it for the Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.